Well, Father God, we invite your presence uh, into the room. We pray that your spirit would come and make the high places low and the low places high in any number of ways for us. We pray that you would make the way smooth for your ministry to your people this morning. We pray that we'd all be changed at least a little bit before we go. We welcome what you bring, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, how's the world? Good? Bad? How's the world? Mediocre? Normal? Uh, so, so, so. De deconstructing? Yes. Good. Listen to the sermon last week. Um, you know, what, what counts in the world? Peace? The end, end of hunger? I mean, those are always the the big things that you hear uh, people talk about. You know that never in the history, never in recorded history, has the earth enjoyed such a period of peace. There has been no war among what's called the great powers, no war among big nations since World War II. Uh, so, you know, over 70 years uh, of peace never happened before in recorded history. So snaps for peace. Does it seem like the world is at peace? Yeah, not, not, not so much, but the fact is uh, we are experiencing, you know, statistically speaking, a period of peace that is absolutely unprecedented. How about, how about poverty? How are we doing? How are we doing? Not, not good. So-so. Uh, you know that the world has never experienced such a freedom from poverty in, in recorded history. You know that every day 300,000 people are lifted from abject poverty around the globe. Never happened before. The earth has never been so prosperous and uh, there has never been, proportionately speaking, so few poor people in human history. What do you think? Does it seem like we are prosperous and free from poverty? Oh, it's just, you know, I, I'm, my my graduate studies, my PhD was in you know, political science, so I keep track of things like this. I'm used to thinking in terms of broad strokes and big statistics and stuff like that. And you know, I, I've noticed that there's often a disconnect between what is kind of factually going on in the, in the, in the big picture and what we feel is going on. You know, is any poverty okay? Well, no, right? And should we always prioritize the poor? You know, sure. But you've got to kind of take a step back and say, you know, what, what's going on? How are we doing? And why is it working like that? You know, what, what's, what's really working and, and what's not? And those are the sorts of questions that, that I think, um, you know, we, we should think through, uh, that we should analyze. Anyway, that's just, just sort of observations to get warm. Uh, we obviously prioritize you know, uh, the poor in, in what we do because that's Jesus' commandment. And in prioritizing the poor, uh, I think we ensure that society continues to move forward in the proper direction. You know, we are, we are peacemakers um, by pursuing peace in all situations between all peoples and all relationships. We help ensure that society continues to move forward. And of course, we must continue to do that. All right, uh, more warm-up questions. Truth or love? What's your answer? Truth or love? Love, both. How many are undecided on the fence? 
truth or love. All right. Freedom or responsibility? Freedom. <laughs> no question. No question. <laughs> I mean, responsibility? <laughs> no. Not us. I'm, I'm interested in a show of hands. Freedom hands? Responsibility hands. Some of you voted twice. Uh, all right, politically speaking, left or right? Right, left. It's like I'm arming myself right now. What do you think? Left, left or right? Undecided, conscientious objectors. Uh, left, uh, typically liberal, conservative. How about that? We'll go with something one you might know better. Liberal, conservative. Stop asking me questions. Exactly, exactly my point. Uh, left or liberal tends to be associated with uh, big government programs, uh, government intervention. Uh, use, use, well, typically with in individual uh, freedoms. And then the right would be limited government, a limited number of government programs. Uh, secured freedoms, but high individual responsibility. That, definitions that you guys are familiar with? And what does any of this have to do with Jesus is what we're saying. Um, I think uh, political culture affects us. And, and these days, almost everything is getting uh, politicized. All of our opinions, what we can think, what we can't think, what we say, what we, we can't say. Uh, the media played uh, a big role in that. And we're doing a sermon series on culture because culture is the environment in which we live. At Blue Water, we think a lot about faith culture, a lot about truth culture. We try to create an environment, a collective attitude that helps people uh, to move forward in, in kingdom things. Uh, and, uh, you know, we, we exist in sort of a national culture, you know, local culture, state culture, uh, whatever you will. And I think there's a lot of falseness going on out there in the world culture. I think there's falseness in terms of politics. I think there's falseness in terms of economics, science, sexuality, religion, relationship, you name it. Uh, there's a big narrative uh, that is just filled with a, a, a lack of truth or a lack of awareness uh, of truth. And it affects us. It affects how we live and it affects how we interact with people. I think the job of a healthy culture is to help produce and empower mature and strong people. I think a good culture produces and empowers mature, strong people. I think an unhealthy culture then doesn't produce healthy, mature people and may actually discourage the development of mature and, and strong people. Uh, today I wanna talk about political culture. I wanna talk about politics because I needed a break and I really needed to talk about something that was less controversial than our normal topics because I'm, you know, I'm finite. I'm not as young as I used to be and I wanted to back off a little bit. But I think the question in terms of our political culture is, does our political culture help produce mature, healthy people? Or we might reasonably ask, does our political culture help produce mature, healthy anything. Um, and, and so what I want to do today is I, I want to talk about political culture. I don't want to talk about political issues. You know, I don't want to talk about candidates or office holders or anything like that. I just want to talk about 
culture how politics goes down in our daily lives. Because I think politics are getting pretty divisive. Yes? No? Yes. And I distrust the environment. Uh, Jesus worked hard to avoid the political issues of his day. Have you noticed that, those of you who are students of the gospel and read the accounts of Jesus' life on earth? I think the dude went out of his way to avoid engaging a lot of the hot-button political issues. Uh, the hot-button political issues of his day were, were divorce. Divorce was a big one. That was sort of the, uh, that was sort of the social moral issue of his day. Uh, John the Baptist uh, commented publicly on divorce, and it got his head lopped off. Uh, that, that's why he got killed. Uh, so pretty contentious political environment uh, that they were in. And of course, the, the big broad political issue of Jesus' day was that his, his people, the Jews, were under political and military occupation by the Romans. The Romans were taking over everything, and they were by no means a just caretaker of, of the political system, uh, political injustice. And, and there were all sorts of issues that went on uh, with that. Uh, taxation was one of them. And in response to the Roman occupation and questions about Roman taxation, Jesus famously answered once, Hey, give to Caesar that which is Caesar's, but give to God that which is God, God's. Uh, in other words, you know, on the Roman injustice stuff, no comment. Give the government its due. It is what it is. But you make sure in the midst of that you give God his due. And you keep to your straight edge. Uh, and... Uh, that's pretty good guidance uh, in, in general. I really avoid talking about specifics uh, with politics uh, as a rule. But again, as for political culture, as for the broad strokes, that's something different. And I want to make sure that we keep to our straight edge, that we keep to our truth in the midst of it. Um, I think what we're seeing today generally is a broader and broader split, split between left and right, liberal and conservative. Uh, between deconstructionists and conservatives or, or, um, or traditionalists, if you want to use that term. I think on the left side of the political spectrum, among people who are often called liberals, I'm not even sure that term makes sense anymore, but that's the term that is used. We, we are seeing a, a zeal, a passion for deconstruction, for cultural deconstruction, and that's what we talked about last week. You know, this, this desire in humans to construct the pillars that our culture are built on. And, and all cultures go through this. We talked about this a little bit last week. Uh, people are consumed with a zeal to sort of dishonor their father and mother, uh, so to speak, uh, to, to just wipe away everything that came before and to kind of start anew. And in so doing, they indeed remove some of the injustices of the past, but if they're not careful, they will also destroy a lot of important foundations of the present, and that's the danger of the passion for just wanton deconstruction. And I think on the, on the far left, there's just a, there's a great zeal for deconstruction, and, and nothing is sacred, I think is a good phrase. I mean, nothing is sacred anymore. Uh, things need to be uh, taken apart and reevaluated uh, right down to the most basic thing about ourselves, you know? the way we relate, how families run, what gender is, I mean, you name it, you name it. It goes to, to, the, to the finest points. So a zeal for deconstruction on the left, which is causing a backlash from the right. 
people who are kind of feeling uncomfortable about that are getting more and more defensive and the split is growing wider and wider and the casualty of this fight is truth. Uh, neither side is sticking to what is true, what is factual very well. Truth and maturity. I think things are getting less and less truthful and I think things are getting less and less mature and it's really easy to get caught in the middle because everybody is picking sides and everybody wants you to pick sides. Uh, along with that, our government has gotten increasingly big and invasive. There are very few issues into which our government won't go these days. Uh, and the deconstructionists want to use our big government to push their agenda. Uh, and of course, people on the right want to make sure that government does not do that. So government has become the ground of competition. Everybody is competing for control of the government. Why? Government can control everything now. It didn't used to be that way, but now government is the controller of all areas, or it's becoming increasingly so. I don't want to overstate. So instead of discussing ideas and controversies in healthy, honest ways, we're just competing for control of government, and we're letting government dictate what the decisions are, and if you don't like the decisions, screw you. So uh, my little equation would be big government plus low truth equals real trouble. And that would be my characterization of the current political environment. Uh, I reviewed deconstructionism a little bit. How many, how many of you weren't here last week? Just, just kind of admit it. You know, you were backsliding. You know, <laughs> you'd, you'd given up on God. And God, just raise those hands. You're forgiven in Jesus' name. Uh, if you weren't here last week because this is your first Sunday and you're visiting, oh, we're really very friendly. Thank you for coming. Uh, we talked about, you know, this, this idea of deconstructionism last week. It's an, ide it's an ideology by which I mean, you know, it's rooted in nothing except that you, you, you like it. Um, it's an ideology that has to do with this human tendency to deconstruct or destroy our own cultures uh, to deconstruct our own selves, to try to get free from everything, even the things that have proved helpful uh, in the past. And cultures all need to evolve. They all need to make changes over time. But if you get stuck in a deconstructionist phase, uh, then, then deconstruction itself can become like a, a, a religion, a zeal, and you end up not evolving but just destroying, just wiping the slate clean. And uh, this happens even to very successful cultures. And there's actually a field of study that shows how cultures collapse and they start to doubt themselves and they deconstruct everything about themselves. <clears throat> it usually involves a lot of moral deconstruction as well. So late phase deconstructionist cultures tend to, for instance, become super fascinated with sexuality because that's a place where morality uh, is traditionally important and so cultures get fascinated with this and it's sort of a sign of, of things falling apart culturally in history anyway um, and you know who knows why this happens uh, there are psychological explanations sociological explanations uh, but we see it through history uh, I talked a little bit last week about uh, the Chinese cultural revolution for those of you who know uh, the history of, uh, of China in the 70s uh, government had gotten really big. In fact, it had become a dictatorship and the Communist Party just sort of decided that everything old needed to be destroyed entirely. 
and there was a cultural revolution. It was deconstructionism as government policy. And, you know, and literally millions of people died as a result. Millions of people got killed. Huge facets of Chinese history were completely wiped out. And it's just like deconstructionism on steroids. This stuff can happen. And some of us at this church lived through that in China. And it was extraordinarily murderous. Murderous. So this, this, can really, this can really get crazy. It's not, it's not just some philosophical idea that we think about. No, cultures do this to themselves in really wicked, wicked um, ways. Um, and of course, we see it happen in Israel every once in a while in the Bible, in the biblical history. Whenever times got easy, Israel started deconstructing itself. They forgot God. They forgot their straight edge. They drifted into polytheism and, and you know, everything became relative and, and morality got deconstruction. And then they got into trouble again. And then they kind of remembered where they came from. And so that will be familiar to uh, you scholars of the Old Testament. It's a historically observable impulse is, is what I'm saying. Maybe it's linked to original sin, just our need to rebel against authority or something like that. Not what we're talking about today. But it goes on. It definitely happens. And, you know, loads of observers today look at, let's just pick American culture. You could say Western culture if you want to be really general about it. But many observers say that, oh, yeah, we're in a, we're in a big deconstructionist culture right now. And as a result, we're getting a cultural civil war. And about such things, Scripture weighs in and says, no, no, honor your father and your mother so that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord has given you, so that through the generations you don't end up destroying yourselves. It says honor your father and your mother. It doesn't say worship your father and your mother. It doesn't say that you necessarily need to always obey your father and your mother. And some of us had very problematic fathers and mothers, you know, and God isn't speaking to our specific situations. He's just saying, no, no, you have to realize what the blessings are that have come down to you through the generations. And don't just throw those things away. Don't just throw out the generations that have come before you. Learn to incorporate the good and spit out the bad. Because if you spit out everything, the good will be lost along with the bad, you know. And you could consider God's laws as being a way of making sure that we keep sane and healthy and mature no matter how cultures evolved. That's really what the Ten Commandments are about. If you read the context of God giving the Ten Commandments, what he's doing is in, in a time of culture building and upheaval, he's saying, look, there are a few basic things that you guys definitely need to keep track of through the centuries. Here are ten. You can count them on your, figure, on your fingers and, and, and that will help. Remember the straight edge. Remember the basic compass points. And you should be fine. Two big casualties of deconstructionist passion are, are truth um, and independent thinking. Truth because once you start deconstructing everything, uh, people usually get very relativistic in their thinking. Like, oh, well, that's your truth. I have a different truth. You know, because once truth goes, once objectivity goes, then anything goes. Once there's no objective standard for morality or objective standard for what is factual, then you can do anything you want and destroy anything you want. And that deconstructionism likes that, right? So truth becomes relative and people are dedicated to basically the destruction of objectivity, if that makes sense. And once you get rid of truth, then you can get rid of independent thinking, by which I mean this. 
once there is no objective standard for the basics, once there's no objective standard for what is good, objective standard for what is moral, once the objective standard is gone, then morality belongs to whomever shouts loudest. If there's no objective standard, then whoever shouts loudest gets the biggest voice. Or, once there's no objective standard of what is good is what is moral, then morality and truth belong to whomever controls the means of coercion. Once there is no objective truth, for instance, then, uh, then morality um, belongs to whomever controls, well, government, if government gets to tell you what to do. Are you following? So if your government gets really, really big and your standards get really deconstruction and relative, then government becomes dang dangerous because whomever controls it gets to tell us what is moral. Whoever controls it gets to tell us what is true because there's no other objective standard other than what government says. And that's scary. That gets scary really, really fast. And, and we talked a little bit last week about Nietzsche. This is not Western Civ 101 in college. These are actually, this is, this is actually a sermon. But he was the first philosopher uh, that really made a big point. It's like when societies get deconstructed, it naturally leads to government dictatorships. Government gets really strong. Government starts telling you what is true and what is not true. Government starts telling you what is moral and what is not moral. Government gets very invasive. And he predicted in the late 19th centuries uh, the, um, the rising of, of huge left-wing dictatorships like Marxist dictatorships, socialist dictatorships, communist dictatorships. He, he predicted that, and he predicted that tens of millions of people would die as a result. And, and, and he was actually correct. And the history of the 20th century, the bloodiest decade in world history, uh, was dominated uh, by government dictatorships that decided that they would tell you what is true, that they would decide what is moral. And I don't think they teach 20th century history much anymore. I did an informal survey of millennials recently, and they don't, they don't really know about Marxism. They don't really know what happened in China. They don't really know about the politics of genocide in those places. Um, very few of them uh, even know about, you know, Nazism, which again was, was essentially a, a left-wing government relativistic dictatorship. Um, bloodiest thing to ever happen to humanity. Um, and of, this is when political culture gets really dangerous and stuff like this happens. Anyway, let's read from the Bible. Now, 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 now that you're up to, up to speed on political philosophy, this is what my PhD was in. So every once in a while, like every 10 years, I get to talk for 15 minutes about it and I feel really good now. And it makes me feel like my PhD was not wasted. <laughs> First Samuel 8. 1.3.18. This is just a little vignette that I kind of like, and it comes from uh, the relatively early history of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. And, and for a while, Israel, uh, you know, was sort of raised up by just wise men, occasionally a wise woman, by prophets, uh, people who just sort of led because they were good leaders, and these people were called judges sometimes. 
And, and uh, one of the truly great ones was this guy named Samuel. And when Samuel grew old, he needed his sons as Israel's leaders. So not exactly a democracy. It was like, well, boys, I'm, I'm about to die. Why don't you try to do what I did? You've seen how I, I've done it. And the name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah. And they served at Beersheba. Not that any of that is super important. But his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So Israel, Israel's government was becoming rather corrupt. It was a special interest government. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and they came to Samuel, who was still hanging on to life. And they said to him, hey, you're old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. What was happening is that Israel was surrounded by enemies, things felt very threatening, and so the elders went to Samuel and they said, look, we need something formalized. We need a king like everybody else has. We need a government. We don't need wise men. We need a government, all right? And we want a strong government to make us feel safe. Uh, but when they said, give us a king to lead us, lead us this displeased Samuel so he prayed to the Lord and the Lord said to him listen to all the pe what all the people are saying to you it is not you they have rejected but they have rejected me as their king which is just a really profound statement you know it's sort of like what do you trust government or God um, and Jesus echoes this in some of his teachings as well as I mentioned earlier an astounding folksy sort of way to put it um, they rejected me, and as they've done from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly, and let them know that the king who will reign over them, will, what that king will claim as his rights. So Samuel told the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, this is what the... The king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run out in front of his chariots. Some he will sign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will, he will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Uh, your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen and the Lord will not answer you in that day. He says, look, government wants to grow. Government wants to grow and once you get a strong government, that government might tax you at 10%. I'm waiting for the reaction. It's like 10 percent, <laughs> about 30. Um, government will will develop an interest in itself. Government will start pursuing uh, its own growth and aggrandizement and glory and financing and 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 uh, you'll ultimately regret it. Might make you safe in the short term. It might become mommy government to you, but beware. It will start to bully you around, and, and that's just the first thing I want to say uh, about, about government generally. Government wants to grow. You know, government, once it has authority, and particularly once it has authority to, you know, to 
to tax and to make laws and appointments and stuff like that. It develops its interests. The people who work for gov government develop uh, its interests. Uh, social contract theory, Thomas Hobbes, anybody? Four of us. Uh, I won't even go into it. Uh, but for millennia, people have realized that, well, when you make a government, um, that government's going to take some of your freedoms from you. So why would you make a government? And then there's this interaction, there's this contract between how much you allow government to do and how much government takes from you. And uh, it's been recognized for thousands of years that once a government gets started, it wants to grow, it wants to take more and more from you, usually it takes more and more from you in the name of protecting you, in the name of making sure that everybody stays free and equal. And this was, this was basically the problem that the framers of the American Constitution grappled with. Like, we need a government, but I'll tell you what we're going to do, guys. For the first time in human history, we're going to make sure that this government is limited. We're going to make a limited government. We're going to make a government that has checks and balances. There's going to be a president, sure, but there's also going to be a Congress. And you know what? There's also going to be a judiciary. And you know what? We're going to write a constitution. And there's going to be an amendment in that constitution that says anything not in this constitution is explicitly forbidden the government. And we're going to have a bill of rights. And amendment number one is going to be, oh, you know what? You're going to have freedom of speech. The government can never restrict what you say or what you think and you're going to have freedom of religion. You get to do anything you want. You can participate in a certain religion or religious right, or you could not participate in a certain religion or religious right. And you know what? Government doesn't have any say in that. And, you know, it goes on and on. You do American history, right? They do, they do so teach that. So the idea was to keep it very, very limited. Um, and uh, I, I don't know how well it's worked. Um, for instance, income tax would have been anathema to the founding fathers. They would have never, never passed it. In 1902, so at the beginning of, of uh, the last century, uh, government spending was 6% of gross domestic project. So all, all spending in America, of all spending in America, 6% was controlled by the government. Uh, today, a little more than a, a century later, roughly 40% of all spending in America is controlled by the government. So government is, is, government is in control. Uh, government is in control. And I think that statistic would have just astounded and frightened the, the founding fathers. And again, our government is not a totalitarian government like the dictatorships of the 20th century, the terrible ones that murdered tens of millions of people. But when governments grow, you know, they don't claim to want to grow. They don't claim to want to control. They claim to want to protect and they just need more money to do it right, to protect, to educate, to ensure justice. Here's a quote. We do not believe that there could ever exist a state with lasting inner health if not built on internal social justice. Who said that? Hitler. Hitler. Um, and... That has always been uh, what government growth has, has been built on. It's like, you guys, we need, we need social justice. We need to protect the little guy. Um, and, and the only person who can do that, well, the only people who can do that is, is the government. 
and so government needs to get involved uh, in, in this stuff. And, you know, Nazism, communism, uh, fascism, all built on, on that same uh, principle. This is why totalitarian, totalitarian communist government always call themselves republics. Have you noticed that? It's the Democratic Republic of North Korea because they're taking care of, of, the, of the little guy. Well, anyway, a big government plus, well, it's deconstruction. You get a big invasive government and uh, a bunch of people that want to deconstruct cultural pillars, and that, that leads to real trouble as, as well, because instead of culture evolving through the give and take of millions of interactions between people, uh, instead, whoever gets control of government just gets to de dictate the deconstruction, gets to dictate the victor in the culture war. And I find that uh, really, really troublesome. This can go bad fast. I have other historical examples. You guys bored of the historical examples? French Revolution and American Revolution. They basically happened at the same time in the late 18th century. They were based on the same principles. They ascribed to the same authors, the same uh, liberal thinkers. And the American Revolution ended well and, and peaceably. And, and became a famous political experiment. The French Revolution ended in a bloodbath. Uh, they made use of the guillotine. You guys remember the guillotine? It was invented by a doctor for mercy killing euthanasia. And the French revolutionists use it to wipe out an entire class of people. That everybody, anybody who was in the royal class or anybody who had any connection at all to uh, the aristocracy needed to just be murdered just be murdered. So they paraded tens of thousands of people out into the street and, and essentially machine gunned them down. Uh, there were no machine guns in those days, but they just murdered them. Anybody connected to the church, because the church was part of the old ways and it needed to be deconstructed. And indeed, there was corruption in the monarchy and there was corruption in the church. So, you know, some of their complaints were valid, but they just kind of wiped out the church class. Society in an instant, overnight, became classist. And it's really easy for societies in a deconstructionist mode, a revolutionary mode, <clears throat> to define, to suddenly, instead of being a group of individuals, to define itself in terms of the in-class and the out-class. Or in Marxism, the proletariat and the bourgeoisie. But it's always something to do with the oppressed and the oppressor. Which class are you in? Because if you're in the oppressor class, you can lop off your head and it's totally justified. And I don't want to talk about it. Government says I get to kill you, you know. Um, and I, I don't know that France has ever recovered from that. The French Revolution, which was a democratic revolution, uh, ended in the democratic rulership turning on itself. And eventually, some guy named Napoleon came and declaimed, proclaimed himself emperor over the whole mess. So it went right back to dictatorship, uh, which is where deconstructionism tends to head politically speaking, uh, to, to dictatorship. <clears throat> Two ways in which this is manifesting in our politics right now. Uh, one, I, 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 have a, I have a more nuanced explanation of this, but can you see how our political culture has been divided into oppressed and oppressor? Can you see that? That's how people are talking about politics these days. Are you with the oppressed or are you with the oppressors? And that's, that's just become a, a way that we're talking. It's become a classist. Our political dialogue has become classist. 
and some people are embracing it, and some people are reacting hard against it. These are the most amazing political times since, in America, since, I, I can't even tell you when. Um, an amazing thing happened recently. Uh, Donald Trump was elected president. Now, not something I'm saying is a good outcome, necessarily, but here's what amazed me about it. Here's what amazed me about Donald Trump being elected president. Nobody saw it coming. There were loads of surveys done throughout the election and in the, in the, in the electoral process. There, every single pollster, every single survey got it wrong. Everyone had Hillary Clinton winning that election by a lot, by a lot. Everyone had Donald Trump failing to win the Republican nomination. Everyone, nobody called it. Not a single person, not a single organization for all the millions spent on polls and stuff like that. What does that tell you? It tells you that there is in America a silent majority. And that's just astounding to me, that there is a majority of people whose voice was not heard prior to counting the ballots. You can meditate on, on that all day. And I'm not saying, you know, I'm not saying it's amazing and like amazingly good that Donald Trump is president. Don't, don't like put that on Facebook. I'm just saying it's an amazing political phenomenon, right, that everybody got it wrong in spite of, of loads and loads of study. There are people whose voice just don't count, you know. In, in some ways, they're just, they're just not being heard, and that's dangerous. That's dangerous. It's dangerous uh, in, in a democracy. And what's even more startling to me is in the aftermath of his election, which, which is just like you know, almost inexplicable. Nobody's talking about how we missed it. All right? If you go on CNN front page tomorrow, 80% of the stories will be about what a putz Donald Trump is, but nobody will be talking about how we missed it, about how it happened. There will be no humble analysis of what the heck is going on in America. And I think that oversight is incredibly dangerous because people who don't get heard get very frustrated. And they get very dramatic, very contentious. And if the folks on the left just want to say, well, they're just a bunch of oppressors and bigots, that's not going to help. That is not going to help the situation. They just get more of a backlash. And then the oppressed will feel more oppressed and they're not talking to each other, and what will they do? Well, instead, they will just compete over who gets to control government, and they will make government into a dictator, because if I can't talk to you idiots, I'm just gonna have government tell you what to do, because you're not safe anyway, because you're not listening. And that's just a scary political situation. Are you following me? I think we're right dead there. I think that's exactly uh, what's going on. Um, and, and, and tragedies happen. Um, we started a little bit late. Can I talk a few more minutes? Uh, feel free to walk out in a huff right now if, uh, if, if, if you need to. You might anyway. One of the things that just really, really broke my heart 
recently was the stuff that went down in Ferguson, Missouri in, in 2014, in August 2014. You know this story? Um, it's this 18-year-old uh, this uh, uh, black man named Michael Brown um, was shot and killed uh, by a police officer in, in Ferguson, Missouri. And uh, which is just heartbreaking right there, <laughs> you know. We don't really need to say any more. Uh, but almost immediately, uh, it was picked up by uh, the news network as an example of, of deadly racism. Because there were a, a host of witnesses that were saying that uh, when this young man was killed, he was raising his hands on his knees saying, don't shoot, don't shoot. And the policeman just gunned him down. And when that story got out, um, well, I mean, Ferguson just erupted in protest. There were fires, property damage, uh, other deaths. Uh, to this day, Ferguson has, has not recovered. Um, it was in a tumultuous race relations times anyway, uh, and into it, uh, uh, Barack Obama, President Obama, had said it is, it is high time uh, that... Uh, that black people not be killed for the crime of walking while black, was his phrase. Um, it's a powerful phrase, right? Um, and uh, and that's how the um, Black Lives Matter movement got started, which happened fairly quickly after the shooting. Black Lives Matter uh, became a slogan and became a movement. And what, what a gracious and glorious, simple, honest sentiment. Black Lives Matter. Yes. You know, America needs to say that. The black community needs to hear that and say it. And, you know, and the rest of us uh, as well. And then the details started coming out. Uh, and it turned out that the cop was, was called uh, into a disturbance of vandalism and, and you know, and, and trouble. Um, and... Uh, and right away the police department said, well, the story that is being told might not be the right story. You know, cut to the chase, it turned out that this guy, uh, who Michael Brown, who was described as a gentle giant who wouldn't hurt anybody, uh, he, there was videotape of him just a few minutes before the shooting uh, assaulting someone in a, in a supermarket. Uh, he was high on drugs at the time. Um, it turned out uh, when the physical evidence came out that he wasn't you know, on his knees with his hands held high saying, don't, do, don't shoot, don't shoot when he was killed. But he had actually physically attacked the police officer and thrown the police officer back into his car. And at the time of the shooting, uh, he was grabbing for the police officer's gun. And while wrestling for the gun, uh, he got shot. And all the physical evidence, the autopsy evidence and everything backed up the cop's story. And it turned out that the story that went along with the shooting had been entirely fabricated and all the witnesses began to recant their story and, and indeed their stories weren't consistent at the beginning and then it turned out it looked like there was sort of a media conspiracy involved and what might have been a healing moment uh, became something worse than that. Uh, the Justice Department, the Federal Justice Department went to Ferguson and investigated uh, and they found evidence of systematic racism uh, in the Ferguson Police Department and the Fer Ferguson government. And the problem with that is that, you know, 80% of the Ferguson Police Department was 
was African-American, the police chief was African-American, mayor was African-American, 15 out of 16 councilmen in Ferguson were African-American, and they were all from the political left Democratic Party. Uh, you know, the, the, the attorney general was himself an African-American man, and so, and so critics said, you know, what systematic racism? And then people began fighting about the truth and, and, and kind of lost track of the sentiment. It's like, yeah, young black men are in trouble. You know, the truth got compromised. Truth or love, I mean, both, both have to work together. Otherwise, things divide into camps and, and yelling. Uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, which again was this glorious sentiment, uh, became organized and they put out a political platform and the political platform wasn't about you know just Black Lives Matter. It was a, it was in support of things like uh, gay marriage and universal access to abortion, and it included a condemnation of the government of Israel. You know things that weren't directly related to shooting black people unjustly, but what that did is like when you raise the Black Lives Matter flag, it causes you to choose sides on a whole host of political issues. Are you in or are you out? Are you in or are you out? And I think that characterizes our political culture. It's like, I don't want to be in or out. I just want to care for people. I don't want to be in or out. I just want to talk about the facts of the situation and deal with them. But you're forced to be in or out. Are you an oppressor or are you depressed? And Jesus says, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's and to God that which is God. It's like, you have to have a part of life that's really not politicized and just godly and true. And it's hard for us as Jesus followers uh, to, to get there. And more and more what we're seeing is government dictating deconstruction, um, you know, like all the gay marriage stuff, whatever you think about gay marriage, wherever you're coming from, it's very, very contentious. It splits the country, right? Uh, and, uh, and so we're getting, you know, judges deciding that issue and just forcing people to to, you know, to take sides. One more example, and then we'll end. It's about a case uh, in Seattle. It made national headlines. It has to do with a woman named Baronelle Stutzman who owned a, f a, fl a flower shop in Washington State. And uh, for years, Miss um, uh, Stutzman had, had some, some gay clients uh, of, of the shop whom, whom she served, um, sold them flowers for, for roughly a decade, I, I think it is. And then uh, two of the, the gay gentlemen decided to get married, and they asked Miss Stutzman to provide flowers for, for their wedding. Um, there was a gay wedding. And she said, well, actually, I'm, I'm sorry. I can't do that. Uh, she said, I'm, uh, you know, I'm a devout Christian. I can't participate in a religious ceremony honoring you know, a morality that, that I don't ascribe to, so I must decline. She didn't reject them as individuals. She didn't re refuse to serve them. She just refused to participate in their religious ceremony, right? Uh, and they sued her and won. And she was threatened with prison, or I believe it was a $175,000 fine. Uh, and, you know, as a result, you know, lost, lost her livelihood. Um, and you know, cases like this are happening all over the country. There's another one in Colorado, Indiana, enacted a law to prevent things like that. 
and got a lot of criticism from the Obama administration. But is it, is it good for the government to force someone to participate in a religious ceremony they don't want to participate in? Would you force an atheist to go to a baptism? Uh, would you force a Christian to go do uh, a wedding that uh, they can't in good conscience do? You know, but it depends on which you live in. And the thing is, these are very contentious issues. And I'm not sure I'm comfortable gov the government deciding and telling me what I need to do. I'm not even sure that's constitutional. So let's cut to the chase. Um, I don't want our political culture to be classist. I don't want anybody to force me to take sides. I want, I want to follow God's straight edge. I want to talk about truth during contentious political times and about contentious political issues. I want to have dialogue with people. I don't want to be cast in or out. Um, who are the oppressors in America right now? Everybody knows. Who are they? What's that? The 1%. Oh, we're going to talk about that when I talk about economics here in a couple weeks. The 1%. It's the white man, right? And it's the Christian, right? And these are the people that need to be deconstructed most. It's not only them. Um, and nobody wants to be seen that way. Who are the oppressed? The 99%. <laughs> That can't be right statistically. You know, people of color, people of other sexual orientation, you know, they're oppressed, they're victimized. Um, and nobody wants to be a victim, theoretically. We just need to change the nature uh, of that dialogue and, and we can't just let politics decide <clears throat> the, the culture for us. So here are my tips to you. Number one, there is no good government without good people. Be a good person before you do anything else. If you're not a good person, be one. Number two, tell the truth always. It's harder and harder to do it uh, because it's not allowed. Uh, but tell the truth. Tell the truth about yourself and about everything. Uh, to the extent of your capacity, always tell the truth. Uh, number three, take responsibility for yourself and your own decisions. Don't pretend like other people have determined you. Do not play the oppressed person card. Goes without saying, don't try to oppress anybody, but but don't play the oppressed person card either because that shuts down dialogue. It makes it hard to speak truthfully with one another if you do that. And that's all I have to say about that. Um, in response to a political culture that I think is increasingly to toxic, I'm telling you to tell the truth. Does that seem like it would be powerful enough? I think probably it is. It just kind of requires a lot of courage. Whatever side of whatever political debate you're on, 
just be willing to talk about things truthfully. And uh, let's pray that God makes it possible. Uh, Holy Spirit, can't really talk about politics much in 35 or 40 minutes, but um, I pray that you would solve political knots through a movement among your followers uh, in this troubled country. I pray even now uh, for those of us here at, at Blue Water, you'd give us a sense of the freedom that we have in Christ. And you'd give us a dedication to reality, a dedication to truth that would be healing in all circumstances. Where this is all going today in terms of uh, God ministering to us here, uh, I think is this. God knows the truth about you. God knows the truth about you. Uh, He knows the uncomfortable truth about you. But he knows a grand truth about you that you probably aren't even in touch with yourself. God makes individuals. As far as I know, he's the only being in the universe who can do that. He's made you to be uh, unique and powerful and purposeful. And no social force, no, no lie, no political position, can define you. God knows the truth about you. And I bless you, brothers and sisters, uh, to be free agents of God's love and truth in the world. Free agents of God's love and truth in the world. Jesus is the truth. He holds it. And that truth will set us free. I just want to bless you with relief from pressure that you have felt in your social settings to take sides. Just say that again. I just bless you with relief from pressure that you have felt in your social settings to take sides. Be free of that. Political systems rise and fall. Cultures rise and fall. But the kingdom of God has been going uninterrupted a couple thousand years now. I relieve you from the pressure to take sides. Just choose love and truth. Both together. In Jesus' name. I'm just going to give you a minute to do some business with God because I, I think there's some business for you to do with God in that, in that area maybe. You just kind of feel the pressure to take sides, to be one way or the other all the time. Let God speak to you about that.
We're going to have the prayer ministry team go over here along uh, the Mackay wall. And they're going to be there to receive you if you want a little extra prayer this morning. Maybe you've come with a need for healing in your body or a little prophetic direction in your life or from freedom, some, something that has you tangled up. You need a little help to get free from. Uh, maybe you want prayer on this topic. You're just like, you know what, I've just, I've just felt so much pressure. And I just want to be free to love and be truthful. Have the Holy Spirit help you with that. Uh, if you're struggling in that place, don't leave the building without giving the Holy Spirit a shot at doing something awesome for you. These guys will just lay a hand on your shoulder and they'll invite the presence of the Holy Spirit to come. And it's amazing what that little interaction can do. Uh, Father God, I pray that you would perfect your agenda for each person here today. Uh, I pray that you indeed would make us a powerful people of grace, uh, love, and truth. We look to you in Jesus' name. Everybody says...